At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Joni O'Halloran. Now, raise your hand if you've ever done an enema. That and more. But before that, I just have to say, I have just discovered, I think, the best song I have ever heard. I seriously think that Lennon and McCartney would be stunned by how amazing this song is. And it's funny that I I said I just discovered it because also uh, Jeff Barr and I wrote it. Get a load of this. Review the risk book on Amazon. Review the risk book on Amazon. If you review the risk book on Amazon, then the book will sell much more. If you review the risk book on Amazon, then the risk staff will be less poor. Review the risk book on Amazon. Review the risk book on Amazon. Wow. I mean, you thought Like a Rolling Stone was good. (laughs) All right, here's the deal, guys. If you review the book 
on Amazon that will do tremendous help for getting the book to sell. If we could get like 350 good reviews on Amazon by like Thanksgiving, that would cement the book's future. That means people would be buying it for Christmas and, you know, it would really like help the algorithms for selling it and all of that. So review the risk book on Amazon, get extra copies for your friends, call your indie bookstores and your library and ask them to get it. And if you don't already have it, it's everywhere books are sold. It is doing wonderfully so far. People have been so supportive. People are loving it. You know, it's got six stories that have never been heard on the show before. It's got stories by Michael Ian Black and T.S. Madison, Mark Maron, Aisha Tyler, Jonah Ray, Lily Taylor, Paul F. Tompkins, A.J. Jacobs, Dan Savage, uh, plus Q&As with the storytellers. Some of the stories are totally rewritten from how they were on the podcast. It is a treat. And we're really hoping that if the book sells well, it will help bring more attention to the podcast. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Oscar Peterson behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Live from San Francisco 2, which is hilarious because we've been to San Francisco with the show uh, probably like 14 or so times at this point. But, you know, usually things get separated and put in different episodes. This time we thought, nah, let's share three of the stories from our recent show in San Francisco. We're, we're on this big risk book tour right now, so we're doing lots of live shows. It's very, very exciting. Uh, the reception of the book has been phenomenal. One of the things is, you know... I do all these signings of the books after the shows now. And, you know, after the San Francisco show, someone came up to me with tears in their eyes, just giving me the biggest hugs, just saying how much they love the show and how much it's meant to them. Like so much of that has been happening. And you know what? We feel the exact same way about all of you. <laughs> we love we love you. <laughs> and we're so, so grateful for our fans. We are, it is exhausting. This tour is exhausting, but it is also something that we are tremendously grateful for. It's, it's also like a true joy. Now, I want to give a little Patreon shout out to our latest patron, and that is Ramses Castle Duke. Ramses is someone who is regularly also responding to us on the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, a wonderful group of people over there. If you don't know, over at Patreon, you know, there is so much more content. There's the entire archive of our 400 episodes, which you 
can't really access on most podcast apps nowadays. And there's our uh, all-star episodes. There's our all our bonus stories. There's our check-ins, all kinds of extra video and stuff like that. That's all over on Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. There's also our ad-free versions of episodes there if you don't like listening to so many promos about, you know, all the Kevin talking. It gets cut down quite a bit on those episodes if if you want to hear less of me promoting shit. So, 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 thank you so much to Ramsey's Castle Duke for being a $25 or more per month patron of ours over there. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Joni O'Halloran. She's someone who tells stories around the Bay Area. But before that, someone who had never told a story at a show quite like this before, Jesse Aaron B. speaks on the subject of sexuality and gender at various places, you know, college campuses and stuff like that. People can find him on Facebook if they're interested in having him come speak about those issues. But this is an incredibly personal story, as you will hear, that he was sharing for the first time at a storytelling show. Here is Jesse Aaron B. with a story we call I Am Changing. I'm on Fire Island at the Ice Palace, which is like this giant gay club with a big dance floor and disco lights and these doors that open up to a deck and a pool. And this is the place where everybody comes at the end of the night to, you know, get fucked up and dance to the break of dawn and then, you know, stumble to the beach to watch the sunrise. But on this particular night, some friends and I decided to go to a drag show, so it was kind of like this setup, right? We're sitting in the front row, and there's this drag queen MC, and she is like very Long Island, and she has like big red fingernails and big blonde hair, and she's sipping her cocktail up at the mic from the straw, and she's like... <laughs> and as drag queens sometimes do, she invites me onto the stage, and I'm like, oh, fuck, like, we know what that means. Uh, she's going to make a fool of me for the sake of her joke. Okay, I can play along. I'm cool. Um, so I get up there, and she's, like, you know, asking me questions. She's like, so what's your name? And I'm like, Jesse. And she's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I work with queer young people. And she's like, oh, that's amazing, you know, for the cause, this nice young man. And, and so what are you doing on Fire Island? And I'm like, well, you know, my friends and I decided to rent this house because it's my birthday. And she's like, oh my God, it's his birthday, ladies and gentlemen. And the crowd's like, yes. And she's like, you know what that means. We're going to have to get you in your birthday suit. And they're like, yes, take it off. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. And, uh, you know, she wastes no time. She comes around me and she grabs my shirt and she just pulls it over my head. And she's like, yeah. And the crowd is like, yes, more, you know, and I'm like, oh, fuck. No, like, I am not getting totally naked on this stage. And like, I have to stop this now. And she's like putting her our hands around me and she's like putting her hands into my pants. And I'm like, I have to act now. And I pull away and I'm like, I'm trans. 
and I'm not getting naked right now. And there's just silence. And then there's like this big applause and everyone's like, yes, we love it, oh my God. Yes, like gay allies to trans people, we love you. And I float out of my body and over the crowd and everything's just in slow motion and I slowly make my way back to my seat and I have this dumb smile on my face, but inside I'm feeling exposed and raw and pissed off. Before I transitioned, I was like every iteration of a dyke stereotype that you could think of. Like, I was dancing naked to the Indigo Girls at Michigan Women's Music Festival after going to a fisting demonstration. Yep. I know, I see you. <laughs> I see you, you see me. Um, like, I went to a, I was a, a BDOC at a women's college. Um, for those of you who don't know what a BDOC is, it's a big dyke on campus. And, um, you know, when our school put on their rendition of the vagina monologues, I decided to set up a table where I was gonna promote the Diva Cup. And I was like, hey everybody, come check out the Diva Cup. It's a great alternative to the dry wad of fucking cotton to the, that the angry vagina just talked about in that show that you were watching. And it didn't go over so well, but you know, I tried. And you know, as much as I found a community amongst women and loved being surrounded by women, there was always something kind of missing, you know? Like, I remember this one time I was at the bar with this friend of mine, Tommy, and he had just started taking testosterone and he's like, Jesse, I just feel, I feel so good in my skin, you know? And I was like, that's so fucking awesome. Like, you know what, maybe I think I just like wanna try it sometime, like maybe just for a year, cause wouldn't it be cool if like a woman could just be a man for like a year and then I'll go back because I'm, I'm not a man and I'm not trans and yeah, so yeah, that's just. And uh, so, you know, I was lying to myself for a few years there and I just, I couldn't lie anymore, you know? I remember this one time I was like really fucked up in this bar bathroom and I just looked into the mirror at my face and I was just like, Jesse, like, we can't lie anymore. Like, this isn't a choice anymore. And you know, I was scared because it's a scary thing to do, but also I hated men, you know? <laughs> I come by that honestly. I had a brother who would sometimes ignore me and sometimes slam my head into a wall. I had a dad who would plan a family trip to go canoeing, and then when we'd go out to eat afterwards and some kid would accidentally bump into his chair, he'd scream so loud that the whole place got quiet. So it was kind of intense to be transitioning into something that I hated. It was really hard for me to reconcile that. And, you know, I finally started to meet other men and other trans men and queer men and all these other men who showed me that I could be a different kind of guy, you know? I could be a guy who was gentle and a guy who was kind and I found solace in that. And I was also surrounded by this amazing queer community. Um, you know, that we, we threw our middle fingers up to the notion of like a binary gender. We were just gender fuckers and we don't subscribe to this essentialist notion of gender that there's only two and like a vagina makes a woman and a penis makes a man, fuck that, right? And that's awesome, and I believe all of that. And yet sometimes I would stuff down my truth, which was that sometimes I did just wanna be a guy, and sometimes I did wanna be a guy with a dick. 
Every year in Philadelphia, there's the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference. So this is like the transgender Disney World meets the transgender Las Vegas meets the transgender World Conference. It's like three days of workshops and like every trans person you've ever met is there. You know, people you've slept with, people who've slept with the person you're sleeping with and just like awkward, people you worked with, people you worked with and slept with and it's, you know. <laughs> Every workshop you could think of, and there's something for everyone at night. There's like pool parties and dance parties and sex parties, and they always have these surgery show and tells, and I always go to the bottom surgery show and tells. It's kind of exactly what you would imagine it would be. It's a bunch of guys sitting in a room, other guys standing up on a table, dropping their pants, showing us their dicks, and telling us about it. You know, like who their surgeon was, how it feels, what the measurements are, all of that. And every time I leave there, I have like a mix of feelings, you know? Like I feel hope. I'm like, Jesse, this is real. I see it. It's amazing. Wow, this could happen. And then I feel fear. Like, this is intense. Like, there's a lot of different surgeries you can get, but one of them is taking a large graft of skin from your forearm or some other part of your body to create the phallus. Then they cut open and close the vaginal opening. They create a scrotum out of your labia, they um, extend your urethra, they actually do microsurgery to hook nerves up to create a fully sensate penis. But the biggest thing I think when I leave these workshops is, I don't have $100,000, so I'm just not gonna think about it. But the last time I went, there was just like this amazing electric energy in the room, you know? I just, there was, it was packed with 400 guys and you know, only trans guys are allowed into this workshop and there were like 12 guys lining up to show and, and they were all talking about how good it was. Even if they had complications, they, they were so grateful they did it. And then this one guy gets up there, right? So not only does he drop his pants, he takes off his shirt because he's got this beautiful body. He's this light-skinned black guy with freckles and he's like covered in tattoos and totally jacked. And the most important thing is like, his penis was just so pretty, you know? <laughs> and um, it was just like, you know, just beautiful in its ordinariness, you know? Except for the fact that it was covered in tattoos, but you know, whatever. <laughs> So, you know, I'm looking around me and I'm seeing all these other guys looking up too, like, yeah, I turn, this guy, turn to this guy and I'm like, I want that dick. And he's like, yeah, me too. I'm like, I want that dick on me, I don't know. Maybe I want that dick in me, I don't know. I just, yeah, it's nice. And so when I left there, I was just feeling really energized and excited and I went home, I looked at my insurance policy and sure enough, my insurance covers trans-related surgeries. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Obama and Medicaid expansion. Wow, yeah, yeah. awesome. Um, yeah, so I hit the ground running. I found out I was gonna be at a conference where Pretty Boy Penis's surgeon was gonna be, and we met up, and he was super down to earth, and I really vibed with him, and we set a date for summer. I was about to graduate with my master's in public health, and I am I'm a, yeah, public health. <laughs> Um, I'm a research coordinator at a university and my boss was like, great, summer is a good time for you to do this and I support you. And I had been dating this woman for about four months and you know, it's kind of like on that edge of serious and it was like this dance of, you know, do you want to come with me to support me? And I'm like, yeah, I want you to. And she's like, I want to. I'm like, yes, let's do this. So our ball was rolling, but 
The thing was, just because my insurance company covered this surgery on paper didn't mean it was so easy. So I had this caseworker named Joy, who was anything but joyful. Um, I didn't actually meet her, but I imagined her being like this scrawny, scrunched up lady with like a cigarette being like, Jesse, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I don't think they're going to cover it. Like, she was supposed to be an advocate for me, and she just always shot me down, and conversations with her just left me feeling, like, depressed and angry for days, and meanwhile, I'm getting letters in the mail, denials, and all these things that are just bullshit, and um, it finally leads to an in-person grievance review. So I drive into this office park, I go into this place, and I'm looking around, it's like this really cold place, I ask the security guard, and he's like, what, Uh, go sit down, I'll, you know. Finally, these two ladies come out and they gesture for me to follow them into this little room. They get two other doctors on the phone and they're like, all right, Jesse, so, you know, this is pretty informal, so we'll just, you'll talk for about five minutes, then we'll talk for about five minutes, and then we'll call it a day. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck no, this is not informal. Like, I'm a public health student, I'm a trans activist, like, I want this, I worked hard for this, and I brought, like, a stack of public health literature and, like, all these letters from therapists and, like, referenced all these legal codes and I referenced my insurance policy and, like, yeah, because that's what you need to do sometimes, all these, you know, gatekeepers deciding what I should do with my body. And, you know, when I walked out of there, one of the doctors was like, that was a good presentation. And I'm like, yes, it was. (laughs) And, you know, I left there feeling really good about myself, but I knew that it was going to be another denial. Um, I have enough friends and and lawyer friends who are like, just, you know, keep taking this to the next level kind of thing. But I didn't want to, obviously. Um, And about a week later... My friend Mariko and I were coming from downtown Philadelphia up to West Philly, and I was like, will you just come to my house? I I have a feeling that the letter's gonna be there. And sure enough, it was. So we like sat down, and I was like, okay. Like, I know it's gonna be a denial, but like, I worked my ass off, and when I work my ass off for things, I tend to get what I want, but I understand that this is not the norm because these people are fighting me every step of the way. And he's like, what do you need from me? And I'm like, I just need you to be here. And um, I opened that letter and it was like, blah, blah, blah. Denial overturned. So I was gonna get my penis and my friend like squealed so loud and we just hugged and jumped around in circles and I just couldn't believe it. I was, you know, taking pictures and putting it on Facebook because I'm a Leo and we have to do that. Um, And so, you know, I'm here tonight uh, to tell my story, but more importantly, this Monday, I'm going to be going into an eight hour surgery with four surgeons. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, an eight-hour surgery with four surgeons and four residents, and yeah, it's fucking awesome. Um, Thank you. And um, I guess in closing, you know, I would just say that 
I know that this is not the answer to all of my problems, you know? This is not the finish line. I don't think it's gonna be the thing, right? But it's also a big deal. And, you know, I can't wait to get naked, at, you know, at the beach again and like in the locker room and not feel ashamed. And yet I feel angry that on that stage that night, I felt ashamed getting naked, not because I had a problem with my body, but I was afraid that the audience would. This journey is complicated and it's not simple and it's hard, but it's also unique and amazing. And, you know, how many guys can say they know what it's like to have PMS? <laughs> How many guys can say, I know what it's like to get catcalled by assholes? <laughs> Not that many, but I can. But you know what I can't tell you? What it's like to have a penis. <laughs> so, you know, I can only imagine that it's gonna be amazing and maybe I will feel some grief for this body I got to know for 35 years. Maybe it'll feel so natural, I'll forget it ever happened. I'm sure I'll feel all of these things and more, but I don't know. So come talk to me in a couple months and wish me luck. Thank you. <laughs> Jesse and me! Oh my gosh, we're off to a good start with our newcomers, huh? I'll tell you, so many gay men have stories of incredible social anxiety out on Fire Island. I think the first time I went to Fire Island, I was about 25 years old, and I had to take a train to a bus to a boat to get there, so it was like, three or four hours long to get there. I was going out by myself, but I, I knew I was gonna meet a bunch of my friends when I got there. So after this epic journey where I was like, where the fuck am I going? Okay, 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 I'm here. And I got there and my friends were like, here, snort this meth. <laughs> and I had never done that before, but I'm looking around and everyone has these great bodies and everyone's pretty much naked. And I just felt so much social anxiety. So I'm like, okay. I'll do whatever everyone's doing. And I snort the math, not realizing that that would actually turn my social anxiety from like 11 up to like 53. <laughs> so literally, literally within about 20 minutes of being there, I, I said to every, I was like, guys, I have to go. <laughs> and on math, I took the, the boat to the bus to the train and then just hid under the covers in my apartment at home until it went away. <laughs> that was my first Fire Island experience. So I went out the next summer. The next summer, my friend, uh, a friend of mine said to me, look, Kevin, look, if you're gonna do these kind of substances, don't do it on an empty stomach, right? So we have some ecstasy tonight, but not on an empty stomach, have a few vodkas first. <laughs> So I had a few vodkas, and sure enough, that did ease things down. So I had some ecstasy, and then all my friends went out dancing, and I was like, I don't want to go out dancing. I want to go to the enchanted forest. 
The enchanted forest is this area where everyone's just like nude and hanging from trees and just having like cruising, you know, every, everyone's just having sex in this forest, right? And that's where I wanted to be on my ecstasy trip. Now, before I went there, I said to my friend, I was like, hey, I, I don't want to name my friend. Let's see. Let's come up with a fake name. Let's just call him Dan. I said to my friend Dan, uh, now, I'm probably going to be in that forest like for hours. And I think you want to come there at some point after the dancing. So you just come by, and when you want to find me, just yell out, Marco! And I'll yell out, Polo! We thought that that was a great idea, right? Well, cruising, the way that cruising works is no one says a fucking thing, right? So I end up in the forest, and I find this, this Latin guy with this bubble butt that is just like to die for and and i i must have rimmed that guy for an hour i was just like lost in these ass cheeks for like an hour and then at one point some guy kneels down gets down kneels down right next to me in the ass and he's like yeah rim it that ass. Yeah, do it, do it. And he just went on and on. And finally, I pulled the cheeks apart and removed my face. And I said to him, do you mind? <laughs> and he was like, what? I was like, well, I just don't think it's, you know, people should be speaking in this situation. He was like, all right. And then a few minutes later, my friend is like, Marco. And I'm like, oh, pulling my face out of the ass again. Bulo. Everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? So I find my friend and I big him, give him a big, huge kiss. <laughs> and I say, I just had my face in someone's ass for an hour. And he's wiping his face off and saying, yeah, I know. <laughs> so those were the good old days. Okay, I want to bring our next storyteller to the stage. She, I was like, tell me something interesting about you. She said, well, I'm a fermentation enthusiast. I was like, what the fuck is that? She said, oh, well, I make great sauerkraut. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, now, she has told stories around the Bay Area before, so it's a thrill to have her here. Please welcome to the stage, Joni O'Halloran. I was wearing this half mermaid, half sea urchin outfit, and I had a crown of flowers on my head, and I had painted these blue and green and white scales on my face. Grateful Dead was on stereo, and my friends were hanging out in my living room. However, I was in my bathroom on my elbows and knees with my bare ass in the air, squeezing an enema full of drugs into my anus. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, Joni, I hope this is worth it. <laughs> now, if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd be pulling shit like this, I would have been scandalized, okay? But the first domino was really pushed over in 2009. 
So it was the summer before my second year of graduate school, and I was going through a devastating breakup. Um, I was living in Ocean Beach in San Diego at the time, where I had just moved the year before, and I still didn't know a lot of people. But somehow, in the throes of my despair, I met this really cool group of girls who introduced me into the San Diego hippie music scene. Jam bands, funk, bluegrass. All of a sudden, I was going out to shows all the time, getting drunk, making out with strangers, um, but above all, dancing all night with my new friend family. And, you know, Melly, she was a singer with a raspy voice and an all-girl band. And Stacy was this artist who once organized us all into a Candyland float for the Ocean Beach Christmas Parade. And Leslie had a seven-year-old son who, and, and, and somehow she managed to stay out all night with us and then go be like the best mom ever at an 8 a.m. t-ball game. And my new friends introduced me to music culture and a new community. Uh, they also taught me how to party. So I had tried psychedelics a couple times previously, and I had tried MDMA once in college, but they showed me the beauty of pairing these molecules with music. And for those of you maybe living a little bit more of an innocent lifestyle, MDMA, Molly, ecstasy, um, they all have the same active ingredient, which opens up the floodgates of serotonin in your brain until it flows out in rivers and makes you feel euphoric. These new ways of altering my consciousness, they changed me. They changed the way that I understood music and my relationship to it. Um, they made me feel more connected to my friends, to the world. They made me feel so much love. They showed me just a rainbow of colors that I'd never seen before. In fact, one of my favorite memories of, was of being at our local beach club in San Diego, and um, we were seeing this New Orleans funk band, Orgone. And I was on the dance floor just surrounded by my girlfriends and I was on Molly and you know for for once I was just living in the moment and I was allowing this warmth to creep from my neck all the way down my arms and I was letting the music flow into me not just through my ears but through my muscles and my skin and my heart and I was just realizing that there's so much light in the world. And I hugged my friends and I looked them in the eyes and I would just say, you're so beautiful. And I know you probably don't hear this much, but drugs and alcohol were part of my healing process. Now, four or five years later, I had moved to the Bay Area and I was in the middle of a starkly different reality. I had been diagnosed with two different autoimmune diseases and I was dealing with rampant inflammation in my digestive system and other organs. I remember the moment that I realized that my life was gonna change. 
I was in the office of this naturopath who I'd gone to out of desperation when an army of MDs had failed me. And she did not have a nurturing bedside manner. And she didn't sugarcoat it. She said, you need to get off anything processed, gluten, soy, dairy, and alcohol. And I'll never forget the, the rage that welled up inside of me at her. Like, I hated her for saying these things to me. Like, how dare she ruin my life like this? Eventually, in my quest to get well, I quit all sorts of foods and substances. I mean, sugar, junk food, coffee, molly, cocaine, mostly. Um, <laughs> chocolate. I mean, you name it, and I quit it. And my doctors also put me on this whole host of pharmaceuticals, okay? Um, an immunosuppressant to make sure my immune system didn't attack itself. An antidepressants, which apparently also treat nerve pain. I guess pain is pain. And uh, rounds of steroids. And, um, you know, let me tell you, <laughs> I was so depressed and angry. It wasn't fucking fair that I had to watch everybody else get drunk and high while I was sober and I still felt like shit. They got to, you know, use alcohol to forget their problems and blast off into chemically induced happiness. For me, there was no escape. There was just relentless reality, all sharp corners and rigid lines. There were times when I felt okay, and so I would go out and see friends, and there were times when I was in pain and I would pull completely out of social life, and it sucked because I had just moved here and I had met so many people that I wanted to be friends with, but a lot of times I just stayed home. And that aspect was the worst part because I'm so social and outgoing and I need people. But I also just missed drugs and alcohol. I missed the way they made me feel confident and funny and pretty and connected. I missed their soft touches and those blurry edges. So one day in March 2016, I'm on a road trip back home from Santa Barbara, um, where I had just uh, seen one of my favorite bands, the String Cheese Incident. <sighs> And I was driving, and my friend Whitney was in the passenger seat, and she's just like cracking me up, okay? And she was like, oh my God, I have to tell you this story. Last night at the after party, I walked in on this guy blowing cocaine into this chick's ass using a straw. Isn't that disgusting? And that's how I learned about boofing. <laughs> Which is what it is called when you put drugs up your butthole. And it got me to thinking. So, I wasn't supposed to take all of these different substances because I wasn't supposed to digest them. But, what if I didn't have to digest them? 
what if I could just put them right up the old anal cavity? So a couple weeks later, some friends and I were going to this all night under the sea themed Burning Man party. And I decided this was it. I was gonna take a sharp right turn because let me tell you, I don't put drugs up my anus. Like, I'm from the Midwest. <sighs> I had a very wholesome upbringing. And in fact, I was like scared, okay? But I decided, fuck it. I wanted to get high. I wanted out of the inside of my miserable brain. I wanted to feel happy and sexy and warm. So I was gonna boof a big hit of Molly. Now, so I'm like strategizing here, okay? I'm like, okay, I don't wanna put the powder directly into my anus. Like, that just seems dangerous for my delicate mucous membranes. So I decide the healthier, more adult option would be to dilute it like in an enema. So, well, I had like 10 people in my small apartment. I put this hit of Molly into a squeezable enema, shake it up, and go to the bathroom. And I should kind of reiterate here that this was kind of a new group of friends, okay? <laughs> um, like, if I had been with, like, my best friends, I would have just been like, hey, I'm going to put drugs on my butt, and, like, laughed about it. But I didn't know these guys well enough at the time to tell them, and they also didn't really know that anything was wrong with me. So I was kind of pretending with them. Now, raise your hand if you've ever done an enema. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice, nice. That's like, some people are with me here, at least. Um, so for those of you that are unfamiliar, a squeezable enema looks like a douche, but with a thinner insertion tube. But both of them are basically plastic bags that you squeeze into your body. So I get in the bathroom, take a deep breath, hearing the laughter of my friends outside the door, and I proceed to crouch on the linoleum, um, on my elbows and knees, um, naked ass, high in the air, and I insert the uh, lubricated tip. And then I slowly, because you have to go slow, squeezed the enema into my poor, unsuspecting butthole. And, you know, then it was in. And here we are full circle. And when you have water in your rectum, it, it doesn't necessarily hurt, but like it's not comfortable. Like it kind of feels like somebody put a balloon up there and then blew it up. Like you don't want to make any sudden moves. <laughs> it didn't occur to me until that point um, that, well, the point of an enema is to make you poop. So I immediately had to take a crap and a big one, okay? Like completely cleaned out my intestines. I had no window in my bathroom. I had no air freshener. 
I had no matches. Like, I had to emerge from my bathroom in a cloud of crop fumes, just, just filling the apartment. And I was bright red, just trying to act like, oh, nothing smells bad. Like, I'm not sweating. Um, <laughs> I hadn't just spent the last 10 minutes in there just crapping my brains out. And, you know, on top of that, there was no way I was gonna get high off that dose because it had only been in there for 15 seconds. So I was gonna have to do it again. So I decide, I'm like, okay, I cannot do this again in my apartment. So I grab some more supplies to take with me to the party. So we get to the party and I go right to the bathroom and I walk in and realize it is not a private bathroom. It's a public bathroom with stalls and dividers that go down to the knees. And I'm just like, God damn it, Joni, are you really going to do this in here? But I already know the answer. <laughs> and honestly, at this point, I'm feeling a little dangerous, like... I'm so daring, like, what can I get away with? Like, I'm gonna have sex in that stall. Except it's gonna be with a little plastic tube. <laughs> so, I wait for the handicap stall to become available, go in, assume the position, and boof another enema, hoping that the women in line don't look under the divider and catch the show. Now, this time, my colon was pretty clean, so I didn't have to crap right away. And the internet said that I should keep it in for 20 minutes in order for it to absorb. So it didn't occur to me until that moment because honestly, as you're probably starting to pick up on, I literally never think anything through. Um, but like, what was I gonna do for the next 20 minutes? Like, I couldn't stay in that stall. There was all these women in line. But it seemed like a bad idea to leave the bathroom with several ounces of water and drugs in my ass. But there just weren't a lot of good options at that point. So eventually, politeness won. And... I left the safety of the bathroom just clenching my butt cheeks together. And I go out to the party and I see my friends, Gary and Navit. They're this like adorable chiropractor couple and they try to get me to dance, but <laughs> that just seems like asking for trouble. So I join a few of my friends on some pillows sitting on the floor. And we're talking and hanging out, and I wait 20 minutes, and nothing happens. I wait 30 minutes, and nothing happens. And eventually, I don't know how we got on this, I, I didn't bring it up, but we got on the topic of antidepressants. And my friend Jill, without realizing the bomb that she's about to drop on me, she says, well, you know, if you're on antidepressants, you can't get high on Molly. And I was like, what? 
And she's like, yeah, I mean, the whole job of antidepressants is to hold your serotonin steady. When I heard that, I just sort of, my whole body just like drooped into this like puddle of defeat. Because <laughs> I realized why I wasn't high. Um, you all, you might remember that I was on antidepressants. So I had been sticking drugs up my ass all night for nothing. <laughs> so then I, I went back to the bathroom, emptied my anal cavity, crying as the enema gushed out. I had just, for one second, wanted to feel like everybody else, part of my world, just to feel giddy and blissed out. Instead, what I got was the proverbial moment of truth. This realization that my path was just different than it used to be different from my friends, and the universe was pushing me towards something else. And I had been resisting it for so long and so hard, but in that moment, sitting on the toilet with my head in my hands, I realized that I needed to lean into it. Instead of pushing away and trying to simulate my old life, I needed to figure out how to find peace in the life I was actually living. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Candy Staten behind me now. There's an older gentleman who records our shows whenever we're in San Francisco, and he plays music when the audience is, you know, when we're there signing books and everything. And I heard this, and I said, who is this? I had never heard this song before. So this also comes from that evening in San Francisco. Now... The sponsor that we have worked with the longest, going way back to the beginning of the podcast, is adamandeve.com, and they have so many amazing products to choose from. Guys, I was just looking, they have this thing called the Intro to Prostate Kit. It's four different toys for just $39.95. It's insane. And if it's not the prostate you're aiming at, but your G-spot... 
The Adam and Eve Silicone G Gasm Rabbit is hugely popular for just $42.95. I mean, their prices are crazy to begin with. But listen, we have this incredible deal with them as well. If you go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. And then when you select that item, you get that 50% off, but you also receive a free sex swing. You can hang the swing to your door and then hang on tight. And then they'll throw in free shipping. So go to adamandeve.com today. 50% off one item. Type in risk for the offer code. And then you'll get the free sex swing, free shipping. That's R-I-S-K is the offer code at adamandeve.com. Also, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand, like this podcast you can listen when you want so why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages you can get postage on demand with stamps.com with stamps.com you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24 7 when it's convenient for you you can buy and print official u.s postage for any letter any package using your own computer and printer the mail carrier picks it up just click print mail you're done we've used stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio for, I think, seven years now, and we have always loved it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Our final story on this week's episode is so beautiful. Our final storyteller, another someone who has never shared a story on stage like this before. And man, you just would never know it. She is a psychology student at HSU. She also does musical theater. Here she is now. This is Liz Headland at the Risk Live show in San Francisco with a story we call Expiration. met in the Coast Guard, and depending on what time of year you measure it, they were about 36 years apart. When I was born, my dad was 63, and my mom was 28. My dad always smelled like sawdust, hard work, sweat, and chihuahuas. <laughs> he was a worrywart, a World War II vet, and would always get angry when I cried. My mom, on the other hand, had a bit of a dark past. When she was growing up, she was physically and sexually abused. She was raped while she was in the military, and she lived with bipolar disorder for most of her life. She identified as a lesbian, which created an interesting dynamic between my parents, as you could probably understand. She had an arrangement with my dad when I was a child that she could sleep with other women, but not other men. 
She was a motorcycle rider. She loved poker and beer, especially dark stouts and porters, and she would play guitar for me every chance that she had. Now, whenever we were driving somewhere and somebody was giving her directions, she would, uh, if the other person would say, go straight here, she'd say, ah-ah, always forward, never straight. <laughs> Now, whenever I said goodbye to my mom, she would give me the greatest, biggest bear hug. She'd get sweat all over my face because she was early menopausal. And she'd say, I love you, and squeeze me. She would have done literally anything for me, and especially one day she drove all the way from Eureka to Berkeley to pick me up when I had a panic attack. Now, when I was age two or three, my mom was in the National Guard, and Warner Brothers for the movie Outbreak called in the National Guard as extras for that particular movie. In a particular scene, my mom's walking across the road and Dustin Hoffman's stunt double is driving a Hummer over this very same road. He goes over the hill and hits her and she flies 15 feet just about and hits the pavement. She got up like everything was fine. But of course, a couple of months later, she was experiencing a great deal of pain, so she went to the doctor and discovered that she had herniated discs in her back and neck. Now after this, she had surgery after surgery, too many for me to count or remember, but what I do remember was seeing her laying down in her bedroom in the dark, watching TV with a neck brace on for somewhere around a year. I always felt crushed and alone when I saw her like this because she couldn't play with me, she couldn't play guitar, we couldn't cook together, and she was just immobilized by these surgeries. And shortly after this, she developed an addiction to the muscle relaxant soma because what doctors prescribed in the 90s were opiates. And this was particularly bad when I was in middle school and high school. She overdosed more times than I can count, and I have a very difficult time distinguishing these memories or really remembering each individual overdose because it was up to 100 times by my count. It was on every birthday that my family had, it was on every holiday, and it was often in the middle of the year in quick succession. But I do have one particular memory where we were wrapping presents for Christmas, which was a couple days later, and we were going to go visit our family, and she and I were hanging out and having a good time. And then her movement started to slow and jerk. Her eyes glazed over and dilated, her eyelids began to droop, and she slowly sat down and completely stopped moving. I immediately felt panic. Where's my mom? What's wrong with her? Why won't she speak? my thoughts would race. Now, depending on her breathing when she would overdose, we would either take her to the hospital, call an ambulance, or let her sleep it off. We never really knew what the best course of action was because sometimes we didn't know if she would wake up. Now, when she did wake up, she would apologize and she'd say, I'll never do this again, I promise, I'll go to rehab. But this happened so repeatedly over so many years that eventually I just learned it was a lie. And I became extremely hypervigilant and angry with her. I'd scream at her while she was doped up. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this? She'd just shake her head, fall asleep, and never remember a word that I said the next day. I would constantly search for signs of an overdose and my mom's medication, her movements, her eyes, and I became the early warning system and I'm sure she began to rely on this because every time she overdosed, she could have died. Now this leads up to July of 2014. My mom overdosed, fell down the stairs, broke her nose, and got a concussion. 
This time when she woke up, she was crying and her words were jumbled and I connected with her for the first time about what she had been doing. We hugged each other sweetly. We cried together and we talked about her going to rehab. My family rallied around her and we did things with her and for a little while, she didn't overdose. Things were good. But on December 31st of 2014, I get a phone call from my dad at about four o'clock in the afternoon. He had searched the entire house for her and eventually found her neatly placed between two pieces of furniture in her bedroom like she didn't want to be found. And she was barely breathing. So I go to the hospital and I see my dad in the emergency room with my mom and he's 87 and walking with a cane by this point so he's shut down. Normally, He'd stay the entire time until my mom woke up so that he could drive her home, but this time, he was just too old and tired. My mom's barely awake, so I talk to the doctor, and she suggests that I go through my mom's room and I see what kind of medications I can find so we can calculate how much she took and what it was. So I drive my dad back to my parents' house, and I lay him down in his musty room with this chihuahua pee all over the floor, and chihuahuas on the bed. And I go to my mom's bedroom and there's bottles of chew and spit everywhere and there's clutter all over the furniture and clothes all over the bed and more chihuahua pee on the floor. And I search for the pill bottles. But surprisingly and unusually, I find little to nothing. There's empty pill bottles from probably weeks or months ago and none of it, none of it is relevant to this overdose. So I drive back to the hospital and I present these pill bottles to the doctor and she goes in and asks my mom, did you do this on purpose? What did you take and how much? And my mom says, no, it was an accident. I just took my regular medication and I took a little bit more than I expected because I was in a great deal of pain. And I am taken aback and furious with her because I know that if she says this is an accident, there's nothing we can do. We can't take her to the local mental hospital. She can't go to rehab immediately. So the doctor leaves. I chat with the doctor for a minute and I go back in to see my mom. Hot tears are streaming down my face and I say, why do you keep doing this? Don't you care about how this affects me or dad? What about your health? When is this going to stop? And I'm feeling crushed all over again like I did when I was eight years old, that first time I can remember that she overdosed. I'm pissed at her, so I start berating her, and all she does is stonewall me. She refuses to make eye contact, and then she asks for her chewing tobacco, and I say, what the fuck, mom? No, I'm not gonna allow you to have more chemicals in your body after you just recovered from an overdose. So she starts pulling the electrodes off her chest and the IV out of her arm, and nothing I say stops her from doing this until I say, the insurance isn't gonna pay for this if you discharge yourself. So she stops, lays back, and crosses her arms and refuses to make eye contact with me. And I'm exhausted after arguing with her and crying in the emergency room with her for three or four hours, so I go to the waiting room. And I'm still crying and I'm trying to read this book and then a nice couple comes up to me, starts to check in and says like, what are you doing with your life? Are you going to college? Do you work? So they start to cheer me up a little bit and eventually we go outside and smoke a cigarette and they start to say that you have to plant seeds, water them, tend to them, and care for them in your life so that your life will grow. And this beautiful sentiment cheers me up 
and I eventually stop crying. But then my mom suddenly comes out, and her face is red, she's slurring her words, her eyes are still glossy and dilated, and she sternly but quietly says, I want to go home now, please. And the guy stops and looks at her and says, Mom, you better behave now. And she says, what the fuck did he just say to me? And storms off. I quickly say goodbye to this couple and I catch up with my mom and I say, what are we going to do about this? She quietly says, I have a plan. <laughs> and my anger wells up inside me because every single time she's overdosed, she says, I'm going to fix this. And she never fucking does. She just continues to make this mistake over and over, ruining my life and my family. So we have a stern, quiet, and angry ride back to my parents' house. Still smells like piss, of course, and there's paper towels to cover it up. And I go into my dad's bedroom where he's watching TV, and I hand him my mom's phone. He quietly says, I love you. And I say, I love you, back. I go into the hallway, and I see my mom standing in the dark. Her face is cold, pale, and stern. She looks me dead in the eye, and turns away without a word. Now, as I said, this is very unusual for her because every other single time I would have said goodbye to her, she would have given me the greatest bear hug, got sweat all over my face, and told me how much she loved me and how much she wanted me to take care. But I'm furious with her at this moment, so I leave at about 10.30 at night to go to Neeland, this secluded place up in the woods of a windy mountain road and I get to the cabin where I'm staying with my boyfriend at the time, and he has a spread of bread and cheese and meat and fruit and crackers out for me. We eat a little bit, and I tell him about the experience I just had with my mom, and he gives me a little bit of sympathy, and I say, there's nothing more I can do. She'll continue to overdose, and it just can't be my problem anymore. I can't handle trying to fix her anymore. I just have to let her live her life. And for the first time, I feel resolute, like I have some sort of breathing room or leeway room, and I feel detached from my mother. And I'm exhausted because he and I had spent the entire night up until three o'clock in the morning the night before arguing, and I just spent four hours in the emergency room crying over my mother, so we go to bed. In the middle of the night, my phone blows up, and there's a bunch of texts and phone calls, but I ignore it and go back to sleep because I'm still exhausted. And then there's a knock at the door. And I look at the clock, and it's 2.30 a.m., and I wonder, what in the world? But I just pretend it's a practical joke, and I roll over and fall back asleep. And then there's another louder knock at the door. My boyfriend bolts up, goes to the door, and checks it, and I hear my sister say, Elizabeth! And I get a lump in my throat. My stomach jumps and falls through my body to the floor. How would my sister be here, and why would she find me up this windy mountain road where she's never been before if something wasn't seriously wrong? So I roll over, and I put my cold contacts in my eyes, and I stumble upward off the sleeping pad we have on the floor, and I see my dad, my brother-in-law, my nephew, and my sister standing seven feet away in the doorway. And I say, she did it, didn't she? And my sister says, she's gone, honey. And my world starts spinning. 
It's lost around me. My hands are on my face. I'm wailing and my chest is imploding. It's somehow densely heavy and an empty ache all at the same time. Like what I imagine it feels like to fall off a cliff face down. But I know my dad is watching me this entire time, so I choke back my tears and I squeeze him and he still smells like chihuahuas and sawdust. But then I suddenly realize that he had to be the one to find her. So I break down again and somebody tries to touch me and I flail and my nephew says, give her some air. We chat a bit and my family decides to go to my sister's house while I stay with my boyfriend at the cabin and they leave. I go to my sister's house about a day later and I go into this pink room in the back of her house where there's lace on the walls and arts and crafts supplies everywhere. And it is the worst room to find out in that not 20 minutes after I left, my mom went into the basement of my parents' house and shot herself twice in the head. Now the real risk of this story is not the suicide. It is not how many times I screamed in my mother's face. It is not how many times she overdosed. It is that ever since she died, I have felt a tremendous amount of relief. And of course I miss her. And of course I'm devastated without her. And every time I think of that night, I have that same imploding ache in the depths of my chest. But she's not in pain anymore. And I wish her spirit happy warmth and wealth. But the real shift I feel is the expiration of my responsibility for someone else's life. Thank you.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Beth Orton behind me now, and we just heard from Liz Headland. Um, I will say that this big risk book tour is continuing. We're right in the midst of it. So if you live in Seattle or Vancouver or um, Portland, we still need pitches for those shows in those cities. So pitch us your stories. And I'll list here all the places we're coming next to do the book readings and book signings and, and new shows. But remember to review the book on Amazon, call your indie bookstores and your libraries and ask for it. Start buying early Christmas presents with the book because we really, really want it to do well. On August 9th, we are in LaGrange, Illinois. Now that's just outside of Chicago. Uh, it's at Anderson's Bookshop in LaGrange, Illinois. So if you're anywhere near Chicago, come on out on August 9th to LaGrange and that's Anderson's Bookshop. We'll do a book reading and book signing there. Now on August 10th, we're gonna do a risk show in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. That's gonna be a spectacular event. On August 11th, we'll be back in Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. Come out and see us. That'll be an all new show of stories. On August 16th, we're in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. And that's going to be a book signing, book reading. So August 16th at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe in Washington, D.C. And then on August 17th, we'll be in Baltimore with an all new show of stories at Creative Alliance. On August 18th, we're in D.C. at the Black Cat with an all-new show of stories. On August 18th, we're in L.A. at the Bootleg Theater. I won't be there, but that is going to be a fantastic show. It's a great, great group of storytellers that night, and your regular host in L.A., Beowulf Jones, will be hosting August 18th at the Bootleg in L.A. On September 6th, we're back in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. We're still taking pictures for that one. September 7th, we're in Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project. Still taking pictures there. September 8th, we're in Vancouver up in Canada at the Biltmore Cafe. Still taking pictures for that one as well. And on September 20th, we are at NYU Bookstore for a book reading and a book signing. So come on out to that one, September 20th at NYU Bookstore. Folks, um, if you don't already know, we have a school as well at thestorystudio.org. You can download video courses about storytelling. You can take in-person workshops in New York, in Los Angeles, and in Minneapolis through us. You can do corporate workshops. We've done workshops for Google, Pfizer, Citibank, many, many, many more. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, <laughs> today's the day. Take a risk.
Review the Risk book on Amazon. Review the Risk book on Amazon. If you review the Risk book on Amazon, then I will rim your hole. If you review the Risk book on Amazon, then Jewish kids might read it in shul. Review the Risk book on Amazon. Review the Risk book on Amazon. Do, 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 do.